Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today, like almost every week, the two-guest model from which it is string for Bolton to depart. Labor scholar Stephanie Ross will talk about the UAW strategy and its strike against the big three automakers. And Christopher Morton and Amy Kapsinski will talk about intellectual property and industrial policy, or how corporate America steals publicly funded research, and how we might stop them from doing that. Sorry to have no material on the Gaza crisis. A couple of possible guests fell through, but I'm working on several prospects, and there will be plenty of coverage in the coming weeks. Over the last month, the United Auto Workers have been striking the big three vehicle makers, but it's not been a standard strike. In a reversal of past practices, they haven't picked one of the three to target. Instead, they're targeting all three. They're also not walking out all at once, but instead picking individual plants as targets. And as the UAW's new president, Sean Fain, keeps emphasizing, they're doing it not just for themselves, but the entire working class. Fain was elected as a reformer, and so far he's been an invigorating breath of fresh air. And the public reaction has been very satisfying, a 75% approval rating, according to one poll. To analyze this strategy, we're joined by Stephanie Ross. She's an associate professor in the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Stephanie Ross. The UAW is using some really innovative strikes, aside from the fact that the president is uh, wearing a Eat the Rich t-shirt. That's pretty innovative, too. But um, <laughs> but um, the, the strike strategy is, is unprecedented. They used to pick just one target of the big three companies. Now they're targeting all three, but in an unusual way. So could you just lay out the, uh, the structure of this strike? Yeah, I think that's what has really... I think initially bewildered and attracted the attention of so many observers to target all three of the Detroit uh, three at once. Some said like, well, that's, that's too much. Like how could they possibly manage this to, to negotiate with all three at once? What kind of resource burden is that going to be? It's such a departure from 70 plus years of practice in the auto sector, right? Like the UAW established the practice of pattern bargaining, where you, you know, typically target one of the companies, the company that the union believed they could extract the best deal from, which then they set the benchmark pattern agreement with, and then they work to spread the pattern at the other automakers. This is a practice that's so deeply ingrained. And in fact, it's been under attack in many ways since the 1970s. And so there is a sense like we have to defend pattern bargaining because it's our strategy to set sectoral standards. And I think this is a very prevalent view in the industrial labor movement. Um, And so a, a lot of people who watch the UAW decide to target all three, I think we're very bewildered and and really including myself. How could this work, I thought. And then there are others who think this is too little, right? They're using the strategy to target all three, but they're being very strategic about how they're pulling workers out on strike. So it is a targeting of all three at once, but it isn't an all out at the very beginning, right? Like the whole uh, of each company is not being struck. And so this is a very, very interesting strategy. And that's why I think it's really worth watching how it plays out, because I think it could have major impacts for union strategy in other sectors, perhaps. I saw some excitable types complaining that they were too slow to target yeah. um, the very profitable SUV plants where the profit is, what, $15,000 a vehicle or something like yeah. that. They've been striking these plants in stages or just targeting individual plants. What's the thinking behind that strategy? Well, what it seems to me uh, to indicate is that they're trying to escalate the pressure in a gradual way to incentivize the companies to make a deal before the damage is too great. So if you take everybody out on the street all at once, there's really nowhere for the union to go. And it really actually then becomes a standoff, right? And and in this sense, 
this is a way to gradually increase the pressure to keep the companies on their back foot. So it's the companies that are trying to avoid increased pain. And at the same time, the union is minimizing the pain to their membership and to the organization. So they're not having to dip into and blow their whole strike fund all at once. They might be able with this strategy to get huge gains with a pretty low expenditure of strike fund resources because the idea is to get the companies to see it's worth making a deal to avoid further damage to their companies rather than starting with a scorched earth strategy. That's the logic here. And by all accounts, although of course there's no final agreements yet. We don't know how it's going to end up. But if we look at the first three weeks of the strike, this has really produced some significant results. So after the first week, you see Sean Fain uh, on the on the 21st of September, you know, announcing an expansion of the strike to GM and Stellantis, but not Ford, because Ford negotiations had resulted in some significant gains. And so there, I think we saw the signal of how they were going to use this all at once strategy. This really signaled to the companies that they were in competition with each other to settle a good agreement first, rather than the pattern bargaining strategy of like, we'll, we'll focus all of our attention on one company, and then maybe the other companies are able to figure out how to avoid uh, meeting the pattern or working their way around the pattern. So it's a beautiful reversal because usually the uh, the boss is the one putting, trying to pit the workers against each other. And here we have the union trying to pit the companies against each other. Truly. And and I think that that is the most remarkable part of, of this strategy in that it really has had the effect of putting the companies into competition with each other to settle a good agreement. And in fact, that is exactly what the CEOs have, have said and what they have complained about, that they are being put into competition with each other. And in that sense, this is great. We know that this, they don't like this, right? They actually want to be coordinating in some sense. They want to they compete on prices and they, they do that by competing on the backs of workers, right? They, they, they are competing with each other to get market share. But how they usually do that is by bidding down workers' wages and working conditions. Um, you know, obviously, we know that there's other aspects to, to competition, like the products that they sell and, you know, marketing and stuff. But of course, labor costs are, are the major component. And this is a situation in which they are less able to do that. And so they're actually now competing to stop the strike at their company first. And in that sense, their competitive strategy is to make a good deal with their union. Um, <laughs> we see that, that that approach has has been extended to each week. Sean Fain has a live stream on Friday to report on progress and to reveal who's going to get the rose this week and who's going to get the punishment. It's remarkable. Like, I mean, Doug, can you think of a time when so many people are plugged into watching a, an update on negotiations through social media? Thousands of people on Fridays are tuning in to watch Sean Fain's announcement about who is going to get targeted and who is going to get the immunity badge in a way. Like it's, <laughs> uh, these, it's these remarkable. are strange times. Yeah, um, it's remarkable. Now, another innovation is how public the bargaining has been. In the past, bargaining is generally top secret. And uh, what's, what's the strategy behind that? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is a really interesting change of pace for the UAW. I think most private sector unions have adopted this view that Deals are made at the table, uh, not in public. And that's actually a quote from GM CEO Mary Barra, uh, who said that on September 29th, who is complaining about how public bargaining has been. Um, and I think that gives us a clue is that actually this is what companies prefer. Companies prefer that bargaining is private because that allows them to cultivate the relationship with the leadership. And it, it is a way to separate the leadership of the union from the members and from having the members be involved in an ongoing way in the strategic dis 
discussions around negotiations. Um, and it also allows for kinds of horse trading and, and deals that might settle a strike, but might not actually meet some of the goals of the strike. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a fairly conservative strategy that many unions have adopted because it's sort of easier to orient yourself towards the CEO or towards the, the company management than to manage the, the desires and energies and demands of, uh, of a mass membership. But there is lots of evidence that that approach has had really diminishing returns over the last several decades. If it did deliver for, for workers and unions, you know, in the 60s and 70s, I think that's arguable. It certainly has not in the last several decades. And, uh, you know, it is a based on a philosophy that open and public bargaining actually exposes the companies to public criticism and, and surveillance about how they are trying to undercut workers for their labor. Um, and it places an enormous amount of public pressure on the CEOs to bargain in a different way. When they know that they are bargaining in public, they have to think differently about how they make offers, how they are seen to trying to be good employers, et cetera, if, that, if they care about that as part of their brand. And I think it actually allows the union leadership to maintain a much closer relationship to the members rather than be in that dynamic where they're kind of pulled into a cozy relationship with the the employer's bargaining team and the idea is like try to settle as fast as we can. I mean, this is what's also remarkable about the strategy is that, you know, it's not a quick strike. I don't get the sense that the UAW is strike happy in any way, but they are not afraid to be on strike. And I think that the way in which they are using the strike to raise in a very public way, issues of the American working class and indeed the working class around the world for public debate and scrutiny is part of why they, they don't want to shut this strike down quickly. I'm speaking with the Labor Studies professor, Stephanie Ross. Yeah, you've anticipated my next question, which was um, this public bargaining strategy seems related to uh, the fact that Fain and the union are presenting this as a, not just their personal struggle, but a fight on behalf of the entire American working class, uh, which right. is really a striking departure um, from right. pa past union behavior and rhetoric. Um, how'd that come to be? And what, what's, how significant is this? Well, I can't really speak to how it came to be. I think that there are probably other people who've been, you know, watching the UAW's internal politics more closely could say more about that. We know that Fain was elected as a reformer as part of an internal reform caucus that sought to move the UAW away from a recent history of concession bargaining and from, you know, internal corruption, where the leadership really was not leading in a way that put the members' interests first and had been leading a backward slide. There was a sense that the UAW wasn't actually uh, leading the labor movement, let alone the working class, in terms of setting the standard for wages and working conditions with their agreements. And we can see that in the way that the average wage uh, at uh, UAW auto manufacturing facilities has, you know, really closed the gap with the average industrial wage. I mean, they aren't significantly ahead of the rest of the working class anymore because of the decades of concessions that have been imposed on auto workers, um, especially accelerating after the Great Recession in 2007-8. There's been an internal revitalization in the UAW that has uh, led to a very different leadership and a leadership that has a view that these are not private matters. That, to me, is so important. For a long time, we were talking about how, in the context of declining rate of unionization, the unionized part of the working class was sort of on an island of relative protection as all of the working class around it experienced more and more precarity, uh, more and more immiseration, more poverty and insecurity, and that made them an object of resentment for many in the working class. Like instead of looking at the wealthy as the problem, many workers looked at union members as the problem, as having something that they didn't have and could never get. 
And so now we're in a very different moment where, on the one hand, the gap between the UAW's contracts and the average industrial wage has declined, has, has, has gotten closer. But that also gives them more moral authority to say, hey, our struggle is a exemplary struggle for you to follow. Like they are actively saying to other workers that this is the path to follow. If you do these things, you can win a better life. You can win a better contract. I think that this is actually going to spur a renewed, I mean, it in some ways already is, but it's certainly going to spur a renewed interest in unionization, not least with the UAW, because why join a union if a union can't fight and win? You want to join unions that can change your life. This is uh, part of the message that the UAW is is sending. And, and it is really hitting on fertile ground because I think for quite a long time, people have understood that the kind of wealth and income inequality, the, the cultural and social inequality in high-wage capitalist countries has been growing and is a significant problem. And people are angry about it, but they haven't really felt like there's a a channel for them to do anything about it. And I think that's why the UAW is, uh, strike is so electrifying. It seems to give a sense that like it is possible to change, reverse this situation. Okay, and then finally, um, you sort of hinted at this a bit in your most recent answer, but um, how transferable is this to other industries? Or is the, the the structure of the auto industry with the big three somewhat unique? Can other unions, other sectors adopt this strategy, or is it um, not so transferable? That's a good question. I think like looking for models is always a problem, right? Because you know the specific structure of power in each industry is different. The way that the companies are organized is different. The auto sector is a very oligopolistic industry. There's these three big players where you can play them off against each other in a very particular way. Like in sectors that are much more competitive. This kind of strategy might not be as possible. But I, I could see that with the appropriate changes made, this kind of strategy could be done on a uh, regional basis. And in a way, this isn't completely unheard of. Like I think Justice for Janitors gives us a model of geographic bargaining where you're targeting different companies in the same region and you're trying to create sectoral standards in a municipal area or a state, there is some possibility of transferring these approaches to other sectors where there is a competitive environment between companies, but the union represents the majority of the workers in those sectors. It becomes more difficult when you have people fragmented across different unions. So I think that it's not possible to transfer without making important changes to other contexts. However, what I do think is really interesting and useful to take away is the idea that unions can be confident going to the public about their demands, that there is a way for unions to frame their demands in ways that very clearly speak to the public interest, and that is actually strategically important for them to do that in the current moment. And that that framing that has to be genuine. It can't just be a PR strategy to get allies, that the way that unions frame their demands does have to materially deliver on the public interest. And that there has to be some sense that uh, unions are actively supporting other workers' struggles who take up this kind of fight. And I think that there is something to be learned from the strategy of uh, sectoral bargaining and the way in which the union is thinking very strategically about where the most pain can be delivered for the most efficient use of union resources. I mean, again, that's going to be different in different sectors, but that kind of strategic and tactical thinking can be applied to other labor conflicts. I'm Stephanie Ross, Associate Professor in the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Let's listen to a bit from one of UAW President Sean Fain's Friday updates, this one from last week, the 13th. An electrician from a line of auto workers 
Fane worked at a Stellantis plant in Indiana and was active in union reform politics. Elected in March, he's the first president directly chosen by the membership. As always, I want to first take time to honor our UAW family that's currently on strike. Tomorrow marks a full month on strike at the Big Three for our first wave of stand-up strikers. Local 900 at Ford Michigan Assembly, Local 2250 at GM's Wentzville Assembly Plant, and Local 12 at Stellantis' Toledo Assembly Plant. So tomorrow, I'm calling on all of our UAW members and our allies to head to a picket line, celebrate these members who are leading the way, and not just our Big Three members, not just for the UAW, but for the entire working class. Our latest strike is at Mack Trucks. Our union family at Mack overwhelmingly voted down a tentative agreement. They decided they were not done pushing, and they want to fight for more. And this is critically important. The ultimate authority in our union is the membership. We decide together whether we've won enough or whether we need to keep fighting for more. That's the union difference. The boss doesn't decide. The UAW president and the IEB don't decide. The membership decides. And we collectively decide just like we collectively bargain. You know, there are some that are trying to say that I'm raising members' expectations too high. They think it's dangerous to tell the working class they deserve more. I want to be clear on this point. I didn't raise members' expectations. Our broken economy is what's raising our members' expectations. And our members are right to be angry. Corporate America rebounded after the Great Recession, and profits are soaring. In fact, corporate profits have hit a 70-year high in 2022. Meanwhile, the working class has kept going backwards. We've seen our standard of living decline due to stagnant wages and rising inflation. Income inequality in the United States has now risen to heights not seen since the Great Depression. So I'm not the cause of raised expectations. The cause is overflowing corporate bank accounts. The cause is company executives making hundreds of times what the average worker makes. The cause is inequality. Standing up for yourself is not dangerous. It's our obligation to the working class and to future generations. What's truly dangerous is to continue to allow inequality to spiral out of control. What's dangerous is to let the ultra-rich get richer while the working class falls further behind. What's dangerous is to let companies and politicians kick workers while we're down, gut our unions, and rig our economy. So unless employers start coming to their senses, unless we start to see real gains in our contracts that match the gains we've seen on Wall Street, then I predict there are going to be a lot more strikes on the horizon. If we're going to raise standards rather than lower them, if we're going to go from defense to offense, then we're going to need reinforcements. We're going to need to show up for each other in a big way. So tomorrow I ask you if you can do it, show up for each other on the picket line. Bring strikers some food, some music, some solidarity. So today I'm not announcing any further strikes. Instead, I'm announcing a new phase in the stand-up strike. Moving forward, we will be calling out plants when we need to, where we need to, with little notice. So stay ready, not just Fridays and not just Ford. Together, we're making history, and together we're going to stand up and win what we deserve. Thank you. That was some of UAW President Sean Fain's weekly update from Friday the 13th. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. As a union man, I'm wise to the lies of the company spies. And I don't get fooled by the factory rules, cause I always read between the lines. And I always get my way, if I strike for higher pay. When I show my card to the Scotland Yard, and this is what I say, oh.
That was some of an old behind-the-news favorite, Part of the Union by the Straubs from 1973. Next, two IPs, intellectual property and industrial policy. Christopher Morton, a professor at the Columbia Law School, was on their show in July to talk about how the drug industry uses patents to fatten profits at the expense of the public. He and two co-authors are out with an article in the Boston Review on the relevance of drug industry practices, notably privatizing profits from publicly funded research, to broader questions of industrial policy at a time when that phrase is being openly spoken. For example, is Biden's CHIPS Act just a giveaway to the semiconductor industry? Morton is now joined by one of his co-authors, Amy Kapsinski, a professor at the Yale Law School and co-director of the Law and Political Economy Project, a project whose goal is, in its own words, to challenge the dominance of market fundamentalism within legal scholarship and practice today. The third author who couldn't be with us is Reshma Ramachandran, a family physician and health services researcher at the Yale Medical School. Christopher Morton and Amy Kapsinski. Right, we've just been through this um, extraordinary period where government-funded research helps us deliver the most amazing vaccines uh, for COVID. More people should have taken them, but they didn't. But that's another story. It was a remarkable period. But uh, remind us of how these vaccines were developed. They're certainly not a miracle of private sector innovation by any means. Yeah, Doug. So I'll say, I think you put your finger on kind of one of the key claims or, or perspectives in our piece, which is that um, to the extent Operation Warp Seed was a success, um, and I think it was an excess, a success in, in really important ways, uh, it was a scientific success because of enormous public funding, public support, public expertise, billions, unprecedented billions of dollars invested in um, not just vaccine technology, but um, therapeutic and diagnostic uh, and in manufacturing capacity and distribution capacity. The roots of Operation Warp Speed and the, the roots of the scientific success of COVID vaccines specifically go back well before 2020, uh, but before the emergence of SARS-CoV-2, to really prescient investments in public science made uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere, but, but especially at the National Institutes of Health, which was doing research on coronaviruses you know, in the 2000s and 2010s that resulted in a sort of general purpose coronavirus vaccine that was ready on the shelf um, to be deployed when SARS-CoV-2 emerged. Um, it was NIH technology created actually with important academic collaborators uh, at Dartmouth and Scripps that became the active ingredient in all of the major vaccines that Americans benefited from, the J&J, the Moderna, and the Pfizer vaccines. The story of Operation Warp Speed is a, is a story of public investment um, that stretches back uh, many years. And it wasn't just the basic research. A lot of a lot of what the pharmaceutical industry does is based on basic research funded by the public sector. But in this case, they even help them manufacture it. Yeah, that's right. The um, stories differ a little bit, sort of based on which uh, company you're looking at. Moderna is, I think, the most extreme example in the extent to which uh, it benefited from public help, um, from the help of the U.S. government. So in the case of Moderna, as you say. Moderna got help not just in the sense that it incorporated basic science um, developed at the NIH and NIH-funded academic labs, uh, but also in the sense that the government directly funded Moderna's manufacturing activities. Uh, Moderna got, I think, over $50 million in direct support to expand a factory in Massachusetts. Uh, Moderna got in-kind support. Um, at one point, the Department of Defense even shipped equipment, uh, manufacturing equipment, to Moderna's manufacturing site in Massachusetts on a military airplane. And Moderna and other companies as well got uh, unprecedented, incredible billions of dollars of support, um, all told, um, for clinical trials, um, humongous clinical trials to prove the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. In Moderna's case, actually, it not only had almost 100% of its clinical trial costs paid for by Operation Warp Speed, but it actually had NIH design the trials for the company because Moderna was you know, essentially a startup with no commercial products. It had no experience running these uh, or creating, designing these large and complex trials. So it was public scientists, NIH scientists, um, that did that work as well. Amy, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I guess the only thing I would add to that is like, even when it comes down to vials and syringes, um, you know, the government was involved. And of course, everybody uh, likely remembers the issues with supply chains and the incredible speed that we um, needed to act with at this moment. And I think one of the real lessons from it is that powers like the Defense Production Act um, could be deployed to really operationalize these important research 
discoveries in a way that was essential to getting things to the public. And I think that is not really generally appreciated or part of our image of, of sort of government that we walk around with in our heads every day. The image of government we have is that it can't even tie its shoes and that everything it does, you know, just touch, turns to scandal or incompetence or failure. A cylindra, I guess, is the model in a lot of people's mind. But that's just not fair. That's really not the history of the government's relationship to technology. That's right. And I think I, I sometimes think about, you know, that we're in the middle of this big discussion about industrial policy and the government involved in market crafting and so forth. And I feel like those of us who studied the pharmaceutical industry, we've known this for a long time, that the government's been deeply involved in very sophisticated, creative research for a, for a long, long time. And, and even these examples that we're offering where the government gets actually involved at the later stages of research, has a more operational capacity, even a manufacturing capacity. But none of those things are sort of new in this field, although this is such a terrific example because it's it's so important and it's so right kind of in our face with enormously high stakes for all of us today. Yeah, when they came up with the op name Operation Warp Speed, I laughed. This is just some kind of ridiculous fantasy concocted by the, the likes of Donald Trump, but it actually turned out to be a, a pretty correct prognostication. Yeah, I think that's right. And I guess I would just add to that, that part of what Chris is saying, without all that background, without the continuous like decade on decade work that had been going on in the background, it wouldn't have been possible. So, you know, I mean, there is something longer term that I think we're trying to say in this piece and trying to help people think about, about capacity, about the kind of investments that you need um, in order to make possible, obviously in moments of emergency, these kinds of things, but also for the long run, you know, sort of what do we need the public to be able to do so that it can, can meet our needs for sort of uh, crafting an economy that works for all of us. Given the government's role in all uh, this, who owned the intellectual property when it was all over? <laughs> Go for it, Chris. I'll take that one. And there's more I'd love to say on the last question too, but um, on this intellectual property point, so it is the case that some of the most important intellectual property on COVID vaccines was actually owned by the U.S. government as a result of NIH uh, doing and funding such important research back in the 2010s. Um, NIH found itself holding uh, a key patent that ended up getting licensed by all of the major vaccine manufacturers. At the same time, these same manufacturers, Moderna and J&J, Pfizer, BioNTech, have uh, obtained their own separate patents on um, you know, aspects of the technology that they have created. So you have sort of a mix of publicly owned and privately owned IP. At this point in 2023, what's happened is that the government, in some sense, squandered its position of power, its position of leverage. It gave um, low cost, I think, relatively low cost licenses to all of these private companies, um, to its key patent uh, patents, and extracted nothing more than, a, I think, a fairly small royalty. Um, it could, I think, and we say in the paper, uh, the NIH and the U.S. government more broadly, could have demanded more from these companies in exchange for use of the government's um, incredibly valuable technology. Um, we could have asked for data sharing. We could have asked for price concessions. We could have asked for a number of different things, um, but we didn't. And then, as I mentioned, you know, in the meantime, the, these companies have been obtaining their own patents on other features of the vaccines, manufacturing processes, uh, and so on. And so they're able to use those um, to block low-cost competitors. I'll say another key feature of the intellectual property here, um, this is not unique to vaccines, it's not unique to mRNA, but I think it's especially important in mRNA and in vaccines, um, and that's trade secret knowledge. That's uh, knowledge, that's, that's um, intellectual property rights that are not formalized in a patent, um, but intellectual property rights that cover undisclosed information about how to make vaccines. In some cases, how to store them or validate them, like how to prove that you're making reliable batches. This kind of information is incredibly important um, to the manufacture and the development of new vaccines. Because mRNA vaccines are a new technology, there's a small number of people who know how to do these things. Some of them are in government, some of them are in academia, and some of them are in industry. Um, but right now, increasing amounts of the knowledge are, are concentrated in industry. And so it's industry, it's these companies that um, assert the trade secret rights, and they're able to use their claims of trade secrecy and their control of the scientists who actually know these things to slow the spread of, of knowledge of mRNA and of making vaccines. Yeah, they were notoriously unwilling to share this information with uh, manufacturers in India and South Africa, for example, who are perfectly capable of manufacturing these things if they knew how. Yes. And th that's still true to this day. I mean, there, there was a quote from Stefan Bansell, the CEO of Moderna, I think back in 2021. And he said something like, 
you know, it doesn't matter if the so-called TRIPS waiver goes through. It doesn't matter if Moderna's and other, um, other companies' patents are licensed by manufacturers in India or South Africa or other countries that, um, that want to make these vaccines. It doesn't matter because those countries don't have the scientists familiar with mRNA who know how to do the manufacturing and know how to do the validation. Only Moderna and a handful of other companies know this stuff. And so Moderna is basically saying, you know, our patents are beside the point. What really matters most right now is this secret knowledge of manufacturing. It's really helpful to emphasize that in today's age where we're starting to sort of appreciate the degree of power that companies gain from from power over data. It's really important to sort of emphasize that what, what these companies have, because we've allowed them to have it in their sort of position in the research pipeline, is a monopoly over all kinds of data that is essential both to the production of vaccines, but even also to knowing how well they work. Mm -hmm. So Chris and I actually worked together first many years ago in a situation where we were trying to use various means to get access to trial data, which companies claim then itself is a trade secret or, you know, protected information, uh, stuff that they own, such that the public should not be allowed to see even safety and efficacy data on drugs. It's pretty stark when you uh, when you realize that even the evidence itself that these drugs work is treated like a kind of private property subject to secrecy rules. And we saw that in the context of COVID too, that when the government was really right in the middle of things, they could play a role and they did play a, somewhat of a role in sort of requiring companies to share more of that kind of data so that we had better ability to evaluate what worked and what didn't. Uh, and now we're reverted back to the sort of uh, old normal where companies can actually keep even a great deal of that data secret uh, along with their manufacturing data in ways that I think really point to some of the troubling implications of more generally a sort of profit-driven model of developing, uh, developing these life-saving medicines. Under current law, could the government compel companies to share this information, disclose this information, or to require um, significant legislative change? One very important power that the government has that a lot of us learned a great, great deal about very quickly during COVID was the Defense Production Act. It is a very broad law that gives the government authority to do things in the interest of national security, but there are also mentions in the statute of health security. And so that law, um, in fact, gave the government a great deal of power, um, particularly in the COVID crisis, to be able to make contracts uh, and tell companies that they had to break contracts and tell them that they had to uh, do a variety of things. And we know from reporting that, you know, this is partly the power that they use to say, you know, General Motors had to start making ventilators um, and uh, that they could have used this power. In fact, I believe, looking at the legal analysis that, you know, Chris and I and others have done, they could have used this power to, in fact, tell companies that they had to share more of this data, including with other manufacturers, uh, or had to collaborate with one another. And they, in fact, did do some of that uh, in certain moments, but not, not to the degree that, of course, we think they should have, and not to the advantage of the producers in other countries who, of course, without this assistance, were unable to join in making mRNA vaccines and therefore uh, leaving lots of people without access to them. Um, see with law professors Christopher Morton and Amy Kapsinski. It's just interesting the government, in theory, has this power and will not use it. It's more of a, a political decision than um, a strictly legal one. I think that's absolutely right, Doug. And I'll mention briefly that one of the, the sort of interesting moments from the earlier months of the pandemic that we mentioned in the piece is that at an event, I think that Amy had convened, actually, on the vaccine response David Kessler, whose precise title I'm blanking on right now. Amy, chime in if you remember. The head of Operation Warp Speed, I thought at the time, but it, yeah. we should double check. Certainly like important White House official in, in Operation Warp Speed and in, in the nation's, you know, not just in R&D, but also in the sort of deployment of vaccines and, and all the countermeasures to COVID. Uh, and he said in, a, in, a, um, in this event that he agreed with Amy um, and with other legal commentators that the Defense Production Act had this power this power to compel Moderna and other companies to do more, to share information, to share doses, and so on. Um, so, Doug, just to echo you, this was a political choice not to exercise the power. I want to say something more about that, though, Doug, which is I think that one of the reasons that, that Chris and I wanted to write this piece, and Reshma wanted to write this piece, is that I think if there is any argument at all for not sure, holding fire in the industry, it is that they 
we needed them. <laughs> um, and they actually were doing a set of things that we had allowed our own expertise and knowledge about how to do to sort of lapse. And that they, they, that they might have, and I, I, um, I have reasons to suspect that, that there were worries that, for example, maybe they wouldn't fulfill our vaccine contracts if we really play hardball with them. Um, there's a kind of structural power that we have allowed industry to have over absolutely critical kinds of goods. I am not certain that that is exactly how that negotiation went down, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised. When the industry has that much power, it's actually quite difficult to uh, impose the public's will upon them in a way, particularly at a time of emergency. And so I think that what, what we part of what the lessons that we ought to be taking this from is, yes, of course, we need political will. And there were powers that could have been used and I think should have been used. But we also have to think over the longer run about the structural power uh, and the technical power that industry has as compared to entities that have more public-minded aspirations and, and accountabilities. Essentially, that would be a capital strike. I actually uh, have talked to a colleague in Canada who said that this was one of the big worries in Canada, that you know the Canadians also needed vaccines, and they had a drug pricing law that was being revised, a regulation that was being revised at the time, and uh, the industry uh, more or less threatened to not provide vaccines if they didn't get what they wanted in this other realm. So these are not the kind of things that people publicize when they do. So it's sort of hard to, to, to really draw all the connections. But but I think it's right. I think you're right. That's a great term for it. And it's exactly what you are at risk of if you build out these essential production systems in this way. It makes you want to send a delegation of Navy SEALs to their corporate headquarters. <laughs> straighten things out. Um, Let's talk some about the Biden industrial policy. Uh, what kind of lesson does this give us for the CHIPS Act and all the other aid to uh, industry that are part of uh, the Biden legislative package? Great question. So one thing that I think that I might start with is that you sort of see a lot of talk about industrial policy and the importance of, of government shaping markets and uh, investing and you know generating all these positive gains. Um, and I think that's all important. But Something that often, too often, I think is lost in that is what conditions have to go along with public funding to actually get the public benefits that we want out of it. There's a sort of, I think, a tendency to follow a model that Brent Sable in a really useful book calls supply side liberalism. You know, we sort of um, pump money into the private sector to achieve public aims and allow them to more or less direct quite a lot of the decisions about how those resources are used and actually make quite generous profits at the end of the day. Uh, because this is, you know, kind of the political calculus that allows things to work without too much change in the American system, right? Um, and I think we've seen that and are, are uh, you know, historically, uh, Sable gives lots of examples from the New Deal on, but also we are at risk of that today, right? That of, of building models of industrial policy that really are all about government funding at the front end with little of these kinds of conditionalities at the back end. And, and part of, I think, what we really need to be doing is thinking about how those investments build public capacity and technical expertise and public power uh, such that we actually get the benefits of these kinds of investments over the long run and don't end up in the clean tech space or other kinds of climate technologies in the same situation that we ended up with in the COVID vaccines, which is enormous public largesse, but um, ultimately empowering an industry which is able to use intellectual property, secrecy, and ultimately its technical power to undermine public objectives at critical moments. We already see, um, after the big spending of the CHIPS Act, some of the big uh, chip makers are cutting back on capital spending plans. They get all this free money, and then they can do pretty much what they want with it. That's right. And I think there's some a bunch of important writing now about, you know, what kinds of guardrails do we need? And some parts of this, I think, you know, the Biden administration is aware of some of this. And there were parts, uh, you know, restrictions on stock buybacks, for example, that have gone along with some pieces of the IRA. And to some degree, uh, you know, attempts to encode some protections for labor along the way. 
But those efforts have been relatively notable in part because they're sort of not the ordinary and they haven't been done throughout the whole scope of the bill. And so I think we do need to think about what it means to do much more serious work to impose those kinds of constraints uh, when we have this kind of public largesse going in, or we'll end up, in fact, just empowering a corporate sector that we know ultimately is not going to serve the public interest, but rather going to serve their sort of bottom line. It's a striking contrast with the venture capitalists who uh, keep a pretty close eye on the young industries they fund and keep them on a pretty short leash, but the public sector um, just lets them do whatever they want. Amy and Reshma and others sort of in our sort of the access to medicines world have sometimes remarked somewhat cynically, but maybe accurately at the same time that, you know, if we view ourselves as as Americans, as citizens, as taxpayers, we got a really miserable return on investment um, in many ways from Operation Warp Speed. Like, yes, it was a scientific success, but here we are, Americans who created these vaccines now paying the world's highest prices for them. Uh, we see, you know, already uh, really distressingly inequitable and incomplete access to booster shots with racial and geographic and other disparities that we expect in the American healthcare system, but now amplified. We, the American people, created these vaccines, and yet we are left with no rights, no fair pricing, uh, and so on. And, and if we were shareholders, you know, we'd be filing a, a suit against um, the executives who cut these bad deals and failed to take the action that they should have to uh, obtain a better result. Yeah, they seem exempt from fiduciary responsibilities. Yeah. yeah, I was going to add to that, Doug, that I think, you know, one way to think about this is you can look around and see that industry doesn't treat things this way. You know, I mean, I think this sort of sense that, you know, they might have said, well, we won't go along with these deals. It's kind of what government says. Well, if we'd impose those kind of conditions on them, they might not have played ball with us in this pandemic. Well, so because they would have said, look, we have a structural agenda. <laughs> we want power and here's how we're going to proceed with it, even if that meant actually, you know, not helping out in a global pandemic. You know, I think we're quite familiar with many of the ways that Republic, the Republican Party thinks structurally about power, you know, when they go after voting rights. So I think part of what we are trying to sort of grapple with is that there has not been an adequate and sort of structural account of the kind of power that we need if our agenda, in fact, is going to include real changes in our energy system towards a better climate future, real preparing for pandemics. There needs to be a commitment to building that kind of power that we also need as the public over time that I just think we haven't seen. And it was really a casualty of the neoliberal era. Let's talk about some alternative models. Um, California, the state of California, is going to be manufacturing insulin. What's going on with that? And what kind of uh, model does that offer? So the California Insulin Initiative uh, is a state-owned insulin brand owned by the public health agency in the state of California. The brand is called CalRx, um, and it promises to make low-cost insulin, uh, multiple versions of you know long and short-acting insulin, and distribute those to, to people living in California um, as soon as next year, 2024. California spends more on insulin than any other state, and this was enacted, among other reasons as a as a cost saving measure for you know the state now, before you go on we should point out this drug is like what a century old <laughs> there's no reason on earth that it should be expensive yet it is absolutely right yeah and the, and the major versions of insulin the, the so-called analog insulins that are dominant in the market and that many people living with diabetes rely on um, to live uh, every day the analog insulins are uh, most of them were approved back in the 1990s and so the the sort of compounds themselves the drugs themselves are no longer any uh, under any kind of patent protection. Um, in theory, if the free market worked like it was supposed to, we would have plentiful competition and prices would have come down. Um, but instead, we have an oligopoly, a big three of insulin manufacturers um, charging um, higher and higher prices. They did announce um, some price cuts recently, uh, which I'll talk about in a moment, but those price cuts actually don't reach um, anywhere near the number of patients that, that need to be reached. And so California decided to make its own insulin, you know, in some sense as a dollars and cents move. It's also, I think, a really exciting initiative because it promises to cut through the morass of so much that's broken in pharma and healthcare in the U.S. Um, you know, it's just empowering a public agency to make a vital uh, medicine that people need to live and run it as a public service. The CalRx initiative right now, I think it's incredibly promising and it yet at the same time reveals some of the limits um, that exist under our existing political economy. Um, CalRx right now does not have a manufacturing plant of its own. It doesn't have a team of scientists and engineers of its own. 
Um, and said CalRx, as I understand it, is a very small sort of office within the much broader public health agency in California. And CalRx is basically contracting with a nonprofit insulin manufacturer um, and drug manufacturer called Civica. Um, it's relying on Civica to figure out the manufacturing, the FDA approval, and so on. And CalRx will rely on Civica for the near term. Um, but the goal of the statute and the promise possibility is that CalRx will gradually take over manufacturing. CalRx will build a manufacturing facility in California. Um, and longer term, CalRx can take on not just insulin, but other drugs. I think um, CalRx has announced that it's looking at Narcan. Um, and going forward, you could imagine this sort of public pharma model being a solution to chronically high prices and and now increasingly the, the additional problem of chronic drug shortages of a wide range of um, essential medicines. Towards the end of your piece, you say we have some models to build on, such as the federal government's wildly innovative national laboratories. Um, could you expand on that point? As we worked on this piece, and I think as Amy and Reshma and I and others worked sort of in different ways on research and advocacy related to Operation Warp Speed and the COVID response, sort of like come to look more closely at alternative models of innovation, um, of R&D, and a distribution, like sort of think of the whole life cycle of technologies from bench research to getting products to the public. And in that vein, have, have sort of started looking wider and wider and wider at, at histories of alternatives to neoliberal market capitalism. And there's a terrific book by Thomas Hanna, whose name I'm blanking on right now. I wish I could remember it. But it's about the history of public ownership in the U.S. And it talks about all of the things in the U.S. that at various points have been publicly owned, banks and, and transportation and energy and water and so on. Um, and it also mentions, I think, the national laboratories. Um, national labs um, like Los Alamos and Brookhaven and others are sources of incredible innovation, incredibly important um, science and technology emerges from these places. Um, they are all owned by the government. I think most of them are owned by the government, but operated by private companies. Um, they're so-called GOCOs, government-owned, contractor-operated. And this is one sort of model of public control, public ownership that is already existing in our country. And we could imagine being applied to things like pharma or green energy at a moment when there's not a huge cadre of scientists and engineers you know, already in public service. We could at least imagine um, public agencies deciding what facilities to create, um, what kind of R&D we want them to do, and then contracting with companies on terms that are actually favorable to the government, that keep control of intellectual property and keep control of pricing and keep control of the disclosure of data um, and all these other important factors, um, keep that control in the hands of the public. That was the voice of Christopher Morton, a law professor at Columbia. We've also been hearing from Amy Kapsinski, a professor at the Yale Law School. There's an article by them and Reshma Ramachandran on the Boston Review's website. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of High Street by the Belgian DJ Charlotte DeWitt. Till next week, bye. Stay woke, stay up late at the endless, yeah.